Today's episode of Wings for Breakfast is brought to you by NetSuite. Successful companies know faster growth requires the right tools. So if you're doing one, ten, or hundreds of millions of dollars in revenue, NetSuite by Oracle gives a full picture of your business. Finance, inventory, HR, customers, and more, all in one place. Over 19,000 companies trust NetSuite, the world's number one cloud business system. Schedule your free product tour right now and receive your free guide, Seven Key Strategies to Grow Your Profits, at netsuite.com slash listen. That's netsuite.com slash listen. Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Wings for Breakfast, our twice-weekly Red Wings podcast here on The Athletic. I'm Max Boltman. With me, as always, is Prashant Iyer. And say what you will about the Detroit Red Wings. I guess we could say that, end that sentence right there if we wanted to. But say what you want about the Detroit Red Wings. They will not be defeated by the Boston Bruins. 2-0. And I think, what is that, five in a row now against the Bruins dating back to last season? So... You know, whatever the, whatever is happening right now between Detroit and Boston, I am all here for it because these are the tiny victories that I will take in a season like this. When I got to the beat, uh, about a year and a half ago now, a little more than that, there was like a running joke that the Red Wings couldn't beat the Bruins or the Canadians. And this season, they are a combined 5-0 and against Boston and Montreal. So what you're saying is we gotta credit you for this massive turnaround? Well, I'm not going to say that because then I think I also have to take the blame for this historically bad uh I was about to follow up with that. So. <laughs> I can't be trapped quite that easily. Uh, but I do think it's interesting. I, I have not seen uh, – you know they've played their best hockey. I mean, I don't, I don't think they played that well on Sunday against the Bruins other than Jonathan Bernier. But they've gotten some of their best results against teams that uh, – when I joined the beat, I, I was led to believe that they were their uh, – they're bullies. They're perpetual bullies. And Boston, with the best record in the league, uh, they come in. They really did still dominate the, the run of play of the game. But Jonathan Bernier, I think, in what's becoming really one of the stories of this Red Wings season, steals a game for Detroit, uh, and, and they, they come out of it with a 3-1 win. Yeah, I mean, Bernier has been absolutely unbelievable over the last couple of months. I know you put up a, a great stat that, that Bernier has just been absolutely cruising since the middle of December. Our producer, Chris, put up... Another tweet basically indicating that Bernie is in the top 10 in save percentage dating all the way back to December 1st uh, for goalies who have started at least, I think, five games was Chris's tweet. So absolutely unbelievable level from Bernie. And he's really the big reason why uh, the Wings have been able to be competitive. And then again, in the, the Columbus game, he actually got a great game from Jimmy Howard, although that one didn't necessarily go the Wings way. But either way, they're kind of shifting into this new type of losing although they were able to get this one against Boston, where the goalies are actually giving them a lot of the support, which is basically the antithesis of what was happening earlier in the season. Yeah, it is. And, you know, it, it's it's been an interesting thing to watch this develop because, 
even today, in a game where I thought they got really outchanced the pretty much start to finish, uh, their best line was a line of Andreas Athanasiu at center with Tar Hirose, who spent most of the year in Grand Rapids, and Tyler Bertuzzi after being knocked off of the uh, Larkin line, just I assume for fit reasons. Uh, really interesting way that the game shook out. I mean, I, I think the, the Bruins probably, I think it was like nine to four in, in to- terms of total high danger chances at all strengths. Uh, you can't really expect to win many games that way. Uh, but a combination of Bernier and, and some timely, uh, finishing by the Red Wings, Brendan Perlini getting his first goal of the year as well. Uh, they pull it out. So what, if anything, do you really take out of this game? I mean, again, what I'm kind of coming back to is just at some point the Wings are going to have to say that they can't keep playing the way that they are in front of their goaltenders because at some point you do have to wonder if Jonathan Bernier and, and Jimmy Howard cannot keep up keep this up anymore and, and Howard in particular has really not had his game for a large part of the season he has played a, a little bit better in his last couple of starts but even still the Wings offense has given them little support uh, you're still talking about a team that's been shut out three of the last five games uh, really struggling to get any sort of offense rolling. And, and in fact, you know, their game against Boston, their 5-on-5 expected goals for percentage, which again, looking at the quality of chances obtained, the Wings came in at 34.7%, which is absolutely abysmal. You usually want to be 50% or higher. But that 34.7% is their highest mark in their last four games. And and so they have to find a way to, to get something sustainable in front of their goaltenders because the, their goalies right now are the only reason they're staying competitive in these ones. So I guess the question is, what can they do differently? I mean, we've, we've talked at length about kind of how uh, short on talent they are. What would you like to see them do differently to ease that burden? Yeah, it's a great question, and I think a large part of Jeff Blaschel's system has been geared towards the number one problem with this team is, which is the the lack of talent relative to the rest of the NHL. And so Blaschel's system is entirely predicated on, on trying to win these dirty games where he can maybe minimize the quality of chances that he gives up to his opposition, thereby minimizing the quality of chances his team gets. But if he gets a good goaltending effort like he gets from Jonathan Bernier, uh, like he gets from Jimmy Howard against Columbus, uh, and then even against Buffalo, I thought Bernier was was outstanding. Uh, in those games, if you get those types of efforts from your goaltender and you play a system that uh, potentially minimizes how dangerous each individual chance is, although you may allow a, a handful of chances against, you can potentially keep yourself in. And so honestly, as I'm saying this, it's honestly going to be more of the same uh, from the Red Wings and from Jeff Blaschel. I think really the big difference where they can try and, and turn these games around or put more pucks in the net is spending more time working on their special teams because I truly believe, at least from a power play standpoint, it's less about the caliber of players that you have on your power play and more about the the system and what you're coaching these guys to look for. Um, because if you've looked at the power plays over the years, it hasn't always been the most talented teams with the most talented players are the ones that have the most successful power plays. For years, Tampa had honestly one of the league's worst power plays, and you're going, how does a power play with Nikita Kucherov, Victor Hedman, and Steven Stamkos be one of the worst? And well, it's the system that's deployed. And so I think if Detroit really wants to continue to be competitive in these games and actually try to win a handful... You keep playing the same way at even strength. I don't know that that's going to get you 
any better results by trying to open it up. But you try and work more and more on those special teams to convert the opportunities you do get. I think that's very fair, and I think, you know, the, the Red Wings power play today was characteristically not very good. They actually did have a couple of really big moments on the penalty kill, including a five-on-three that I thought seemed uh, destined to, to bite them in the ass after they botched two power plays. They, they had to kill a minute 18 of a Boston five-on-three. I thought, you know, that's destined to, to end in a goal. It didn't, so uh, kudos to them, I guess, for that. The, the penalty kill has been a real rough spot for them this whole season and, and, they, and they got that done and I think that's a that's a big reason they were able to pull it out they also had uh, Boston had a goal called back for offside that after looking at it looks pretty clearly like offside uh, and really the actually the only goal that they scored uh, that, that was upheld maybe a little bit controversial there too after, after Luke Lindenning took was it a high stick to the face I didn't have a good look at the actual play but he he laid there Dylan Larkin had the puck, seemed to kind of flip it forward, thinking, I don't know if we thought they were going to blow the play dead while the Red Wings had possession, or if we thought they were outright getting a penalty whenever Boston touched it, but uh, instead, the Red Wings turn it over, and, and Boston just walks right in and scores. Uh, that Those kind of, I guess, the, the highlights uh, of, the, of the game, or, or the, the notable moments, in addition to Andreas Athanasiu getting his uh, first couple goals since coming back. Yeah, I mean, first goal is, I think, what, in 20 games for Athanasiu? So that's got to be a huge relief uh, for him to, to get on the scoreboard. And honestly, as you and I have talked about, uh, he is the, the most prized target for the Red Wings from a trade standpoint. And, and kind of if you're the front office, you're simultaneously hoping he heats up such that that increases his value if you are looking to move him while also seeing if he can heat up and refine that or regain some of that confidence uh, heading into the off season, you may feel more comfortable locking him up if you've decided that potentially he's going to be a part of your organization moving forward. So I think that's a it was an excellent sight to see him. It was a great play really overall with Larkin getting that puck to Bertuzzi and Bertuzzi very quickly sliding that across the crease to get that over to Athanasiu um, for that goal. And then yeah, like you mentioned on that Boston goal. Really, really weird play where David Pasternak essentially takes a baseball bat swing, trying to knock the puck out of the air, completely misses the puck and connects with Glenn Denning's face. Pasternak kind of realizes what he's done. He bends over to actually apologize to Glenn Denning, realizes that nobody has blown the play dead. So then he just skates into the zone, takes the pass, and then uh, uh, is able to make a pass to the center of the ice to get the goal on an empty net. So... Really weird play. That one should have definitely been uh, stopped for a high stake, and, and Pasternak should have been in the penalty box there. So uh, outside of that, you can't really complain much with the Red Wings' defensive effort when you include their ability on the penalty kill. So you walk away, and hey, now you're sitting at, what, 32 points, um, inching ever closer to moving past that 85-86 Red Wings team that posted only 40 points on the season. Yes, indeed. Uh so those, that, that's this game. There, there've also been a few games since the last time we talked. I think we talked right before, was it Tuesday uh, afternoon or evening? So there's also the win against Buffalo. The Red Wings pulled out in a shootout and a 2-0 loss to the Blue Jackets. Anything we should go back and revisit with those games before we power forward into the the news and uh, and other discussion here? No, I mean, the highlight really, I think, was Jimmy Howard in Columbus. He, uh, I missed that game as I was on a plane to Columbus for the Hockey Analytics Conference this past weekend. So I didn't get to see much of it, but in reviewing the highlights, it really looks like the Wings had absolutely no business being in that hockey game. Uh, they managed to 
to put only .43 expected goals for at 5-on-5. Uh, or sorry, that was .43 in the Buffalo game, .81 in the Columbus game. Two of the lowest marks by any team in the season this year. So really putrid offensive outputs in that one. Howard got no support and still managed to, to bring the wings within a, a goal and within really a couple minutes of being victorious there against a, a strong team. So I think that's the only thing I'd highlight is Jimmy seems to be finding his game to a certain degree. How was the analytics conference? Now, the analytics conference was outstanding. Um, for those that uh, got to attend it this past weekend, the Columbus Blue Jackets and um, worked with Allison Lucan, one of the writers for the Athletic Columbus uh, section, and, and they spent a lot of time putting together an absolutely outstanding event all the way from the the opening remarks made by uh, Columbus Blue Jackets general manager Jarmo Kekalainen, who uh, was there in attendance uh, at the beginning and kind of issued a challenge to all of the members of the audience. They had outstanding um, panels. I think probably the most insightful thing that came away from that conference was how the panels were set up and, and really run. And they had several different executives panels, analyst panels, um, a couple of them moderated by uh, Craig Custance, the editor-in-chief of The Athletic here. And so he uh, did an excellent job getting a lot of information from these people. I think some of the panels that I thought were particularly good was the morning session, which had a Colorado Avalanche analyst, Eric Parnas, among a couple of other people on there. Uh, one analyst who worked for the Rangers, one who works for the Blue Jackets, um, and they had an excellent discussion about how to really handle tracking data as that comes into the NHL. And then I think the afternoon panel also did a really good job. The afternoon panel had uh, Chris Boucher, uh, who's director of Sport Logic, Andrew Thomas, who's uh, an analyst working at SMT, formerly working with the uh, Minnesota Wild, um, Chris McFarlane and Josh Flynn, uh, a couple of people associated. So Chris McFarlane, assistant general manager for the Colorado Avalanche, Josh Flynn, assistant general manager for the Columbus Blue Jackets. So a lot of outstanding people, um, really, that you got to hear from, hear their thoughts. And then the final panel on the day had, again, a lot of outstanding people, notably Alex Mandrecki, who's uh, heading up a lot of the efforts over in Seattle, putting together an outstanding organization group over there. So really great opportunity to hear from a lot of highly intelligent people. A lot of really interesting things are going to come out of there. I think the materials for the conference should be released uh, shortly, including a YouTube stream that'll be archived. So if you missed any of it, be sure to go back and check that out. Absolutely. So Okay, so now let's cut right through that. Uh, what trades did they tell all of uh, the analytics community about? Because I know that's what happens with those things. Yeah, exactly. And Craig was doing the best job he could to really pull uh, information out. So when, in one of the afternoon panels, Craig was uh, talking to Matt Kane, who's an analyst for the New Jersey Devils, I believe the director of analytics for them, and he and Matt Kane was talking a little bit about the relationship the Devils had with the Philadelphia 76ers. And, and uh, Matt kind of mentioned that the Sixers shared a lot of the mistakes that they made uh, with the Devils. So the, the Devils kind of know how to move forward. And Craig was really pressing Matt to get him to give up a mistake. And, and I met up with Matt afterwards and he was going, should I have said Markel Fultz? Should I have said Michael Carter-Williams? <laughs> which, which draft pick was I going to go with? And I ended up going with nothing. So uh, it was a, it was honestly a really great conversation. Um, a lot of really cool stories like that to hear. And and it was just a really fun conversation overall with all of those people. No trade spoiled, unfortunately, but a lot of really interesting anecdotes. 
Well, that's all the same to me. Uh, so that's good. That's, that's really fun. I, I, I should have gone to the conference. I was, uh, a little slow to, to realize that the Red Wings played there the night before, even though in hindsight, I remember you telling me that like months <laughs> ago. So, so I good. actually took a couple of days off to go to Pittsburgh and just hang out with a bunch of old friends. So while Prashant was, uh, expanding his brain power, I was killing brain cells. So, uh, that's about right. That's about, that's about on brand for our, our, our dynamic here. It works. I mean, you know, Craig and I met up in the morning. We said, you know, Max really should have been here. Max is slapping, <laughs> and you know, we just we laid it out as is. But then we, we we brought it back to that. So you're good, Max. Yeah, but Craig tells everyone who will listen that I'm slacking. So I don't know. Fair enough. That. Fair enough. Yeah, absolutely. All right, uh, let's get into some of the news elements because there's a couple things uh, from this week that I think really merit some discussion. The first of which, Dennis Chlowski ends up reassigned to Grand Rapids. Yeah, this is a really interesting move because one, I was kind of thinking is, all right, is this a setup for another defenseman to either potentially come up? So with Gustav Lindstrom already being up, would this potentially allow for Moritz Sider to come up? That wasn't necessarily the case. Uh, it seems that Trolowski is just being sent down at this point, uh, more based well, on- Well, Green his- came back, right? Yeah, that's right. Mike Green did come back. So you got Mike Green back from injury here. And so, you know, again, I still think Chalowski is the odd man out at, at this point. And when you look back at his metrics, it's, it's again, a disappointing conclusion to the season for him. I don't know that this is the last you'll see of him, particularly with the number of injuries the Wings have had. They seem to have a revolving door in Grand Rapids right now or some method where they can quickly get these guys up here. Uh, but for Chalowski, I think it's, it's disappointing that once again, he is kind of on the outside looking in. He's back in Grand Rapids this being his second season in the NHL and and not able to really stick with the team and get those consistent minutes. I think the challenge for Chalowski is finding that right balance of his offensive instincts, which clearly come out on the power play, uh, and he's able to do a lot more with there. But the problem is right now he's not necessarily playing that those minutes. He's not really playing in that role with Mike Green and Philip Ronick kind of manning most of those Minutes, so it's it's a bit of a challenge of how do you balance that for him? How's he going to better round out his game? The coaching staff has been really transparent that they're they're very tough on him because they believe he can be a lot better than he is right now. Um, and so for him, I think it's a little bit of a disappointment. Me personally, looking at this, I don't know that his play has necessarily merited him staying up here, even with the team being as as awful as they've been this year. I haven't necessarily seen the sustained flashes from Chalowski's game. They don't really bore out in the analytics when you're looking at him from a value perspective, from a goals above replacement, when you look at him from his impact on, on quality of chances against, quality of chances for. It's just not there right now. And so you're kind of going back to the drawing board with him. You're going back to giving him another offseason to see if he can figure this out. But as of right now, I don't think he's there yet. Yeah, and, and I, I think that's probably true. My, my my guess is that the the biggest challenge that they'll run into with him is they're going to want him, you know, quarterbacking power play unit. Uh, and like you said, when when Mike Green and Phil Peronik are in, you know, you're, you're basically faced with the question of do you want him to quarterback second unit or do you want him in Grand Rapids? Me personally, I, you know, watching him play, I didn't think that he was one of their two worst defensemen when he was in the lineup. I thought he added a little bit of a dynamic 
uh, getting the puck up the ice. Him and Hironik, I thought, looked pretty good together most of the time. You can still find mistakes, as you can with anybody. Uh, but I think the important thing here is, like, a lot of, I think a lot of times people look at these situations and, and every single, you know, event kind of seems like it's really make or break. And, uh, I don't know that I would look at it that way. I don't, I don't, you know, I think players are pretty resilient. You know, they, they've been through stuff before. Uh, it's ultimately not going to devastate them or, or ruin their development to have situations like this. I do think, though, you know, Chalosky's a guy who I have to wonder, does Detroit really have the right situation in place for a guy like him to maximize his potential? I, I don't think it's about their coaching. I don't think it's about player development per se. Uh, but I think those things all combine to a situation where, you know, Chalosky is a guy who's made the team out of camp a couple years in a row. He's obviously the one who's on the ice making the mistakes and, and all those things that, that, that have eventually gotten him sent down. But I wonder, would he learn better in a place that has a number one power play quarterback to really learn from? I mean, Mike Green obviously is a guy who was that, but I don't know that he's necessarily that right now. I mean, when Chalowski's been in the lineup in Detroit this season, it's been as the number one power play guy. And and I wonder, does that, uh, does that affect things? I don't know. I'm just kind of spitballing here, but does anything that I just said make any sense? <laughs> yeah, I, I think it does. And I think what you're alluding to to a certain extent is prospect development and how variable it can be. And I think this is oftentimes a nuanced topic that's not discussed enough when we discuss how players transition from juniors, uh, from the draft to the NHL, that depending on the situation a player is dropped in, that significantly impacts how quickly or how likely they are to make that transition. And I think Right now, that's really an unmeasured area from an analytics perspective. There's not a lot of information out there look, uh, in terms of looking at players and their likelihood of transitioning based on where they're drafted and the type of team that uh, picked them and, and, and kind of the roster players ahead of him. You know, Chalowski, I completely agree with you. He's not been one of their bottom two defensemen. And when I'm saying I don't know that I've necessarily seen the pieces from him, I'm, I'm making the given that Guys like Madison Bowie, Trevor Daly, Alex Biega, uh, these guys are going to unfortunately play in front of them, but that's not always going to be the case. Those are guys who are likely to to be gone at the end of the season, and so Chalowski will naturally be able to send up from there. But in terms of what the coaching staff's looking for and that impact at five on five, the impact on the power play, it's it's hard to really tease out that he's made any of that. And I think the point you make that. Does he have the right role models or, or players to learn from in the organization? And I think Mike Green had those skills, um, but also Mike Green never really was that defensive uh, defenseman. And not having Danny DeKaiser around to really talk and model and, and, and help Chalowski to a certain extent, I think that's a bit of an issue. Now, Nick Cronwell, working as a special advisor to the organization, I'm certain that he will be spending some time with Chalowski, particularly once he's down in Grand Rapids again working on some of those elements. But I, th I think right now I'm still looking to see him. Can he be a difference maker at five on five? And then if that's the case, can he be a positive difference maker at five on five? And once he demonstrates that, I will hand him the power play time. Uh, I think until those pieces are all there, I don't know that you can really afford to keep a defenseman on your roster who can only influence 20% of the game. And and that's where I think the the challenge is right now. 
I think it's fair, and, and I, I just, you know, I think it all comes back to this broader question of what is the development impact of an NHL team in the position that this Red Wings team is in? Because there are teams, I have no doubt, that if you put Dennis Strzelowski on and you could play him, you know, 15 minutes a night on your second power play behind a really good number one power play quarterback that he was always watching and learning from, uh, that I think that's a real good way to shepherd a guy like that along. Maybe 16, 17, whatever. The minutes don't necessarily matter. The, the point is third-pairing role uh, where you can shelter a little bit and, and you don't have to ask him to, to really step up uh, in these ways that, you know, a, a young offensive-minded defenseman is going to make mistakes. That's part of making good plays is that you're taking chances and sometimes the chances turn into mistakes. So uh, I think maybe that's something that, uh, is always going to be is always going to be somewhere in that that playing style, and I just wonder if 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 a if a situation like the Red Wings have uh, ultimately makes that harder. I guess that's where I'm going. I don't I don't know that that places blame on necessarily the development staff, and I hope that's not that's not what I was necessarily trying to say there. But I think it's just the development environment of a team that's in the position the Red Wings are in. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think that's an important distinction to make. Like. By no means is this any fault of the development staff or the organization, the front office, the coaching staff. What I think the challenge is is when you don't have the the correct environment for a player to step into. An environment is who are the guys ahead of this particular player in the organization. Exactly. And unfortunately, the Wings have been log jammed on defense um, for the last several years. That has really kind of limited Cholowski's ability to transition. Really, the only uh, question in his development was should he have left uh, St. Cloud State when he did um, that was the only initial challenge as far as Chalowski in his early development but outside of that I think it's really come down to you know there's just a lot of guys in front of him this is not a good team so the minutes that you're going to play here are going to be tough minutes regardless of who you're playing against who you're playing with the you're just going to be in a difficult environment and then for a guy like Chalowski to try and step in and and be successful uh in that environment I just don't think he's in a position to really do that um you look at a guy and, and again Mike Green's a great example of of this when the, when the Capitals brought Mike Green in they were able to bring him along you know quite slowly uh, with a much better team in front of him that, that kind of rapidly improved. But he got to play with a lot of good defensive guys. I know one guy that he got some minutes with was Brendan Witt, uh, who was a, a relatively decent defenseman for the Capitals. And that was kind of Mike Green's rookie year. And the Capitals weren't very good his rookie year. They weren't really good, very good his next season either. But he got to move up with, with different players like Brian Poitier, Steve Eminger, a lot of different defensemen that were able to maybe shepherd them along, and that team really grew together. I just don't think the Wings are on that trajectory, and I don't think that Chalowski's got those minutes available to him, and it's just not the right environment right now. And so I think you're kind of hoping that next season, when a lot of these guys turn over, you're potentially adding a little bit more talent with the guy you pick in this draft, as well as potentially bringing more insider up, you may be able to to make this team environment a little bit more conducive to him succeeding. Yeah, and, and you know, you think about what the actual development staff has done with him, and it, they've gotten him ready to make the NHL team out of training camp both of the last two seasons. So that's just where the weird disconnect is, right? Like he makes this progress in the summer that seems to LA kind of concerns, and, and I think back to, to two training camps ago, so twenty the 2018-19 season, he didn't just make that team. He looked like 
maybe their best defenseman at times during the preseason. So clearly the development staff is doing something right with him. It's just that once he gets into Detroit, and, you know, even at the start of, of last season, he was really strong uh, to the point that, you know, it looked like, oh, wow, like they really have something here. Uh, something keeps going wrong in season. And and to me, the, the common denominator there uh, is that they've been some pretty bad teams asking him to step into these roles. So uh, obviously some of the blame has to lie with the player. That's unavoidable here. But I'm just I'm just kind of thinking out loud about what the possibilities could be for, for why these impasses keep popping up because I think it's clear that uh, something's going right in the summer and then going wrong in the season, and, and that's that's hard to square. Yeah, I completely agree. And, I, and again, bringing it back to Chalowski, I don't. I think I should be clear that I don't think this is a guy who's going to step up and, and be that first line, uh, first sure. pairing defenseman, even a second pairing defenseman. I really do think, you know, when you bring this back to the pedigree of the player, when he was drafted at 20th overall in in that draft, many people felt he was a significant reach. A lot of people had him end of the second round, uh, some t- somewhere even in the early third. And so when you're starting with a player kind of like that and, and the Wings really thought they saw something there, that development track is going to be much slower. But I also think as that remains slow, I'm kind of reverting back to the initial assessment of him. And again, there's a lot of things that have happened along the way um, that have really shaped where he is right now. But I think this is a guy where you're hoping he can just hit the ceiling as a third-pairing puck-moving defenseman that can get the puck up the ice that can help you out on the power play and won't hurt you too much defensively. Um, but I don't know that you're going to get much more than that. It's just him finding the right balance so that he can be in every hockey game in Detroit moving forward. Yep. The flip side of this is the shiny new toy on the blue line, which is Gustav Lindstrom. He makes his NHL debut Thursday against Buffalo, plays uh, three games, and, and I don't know that he was real necessarily noticeable in any of them. Is that a case of not noticeable in a good way, uh, as in not making many big mistakes, or not noticeable in a bad way? I think it's not noticeable in the case of not making substantial mistakes, and this may be a reason why Lindstrom is going to be more successful than Chalowski, at least early on, is because his game is not open or subject to these massive swings. Lindstrom is not going to get up the ice on a rush and try and lead a three-on-two. Lindstrom is going to play a very safe and defensive game. He's going to make a good first pass out of his defensive zone. I think you saw that a lot in these first three games where the first read he was making was generally conservative, but generally completed and not resulting in chances against. He's not going to be a part of driving that offense, but I do think overall he looked relatively solid in that respect. And he's a guy that's going to likely thrive in that environment more than uh, Chalowski. And again, that also comes back to a certain extent with the pedigree you know, when I was talking about him on the last podcast, I was kind of projecting that Lindstrom, in my best ability, I'm hoping that he is Jonathan Erickson pre these injuries, a guy that stays at home, relatively mobile, can make a good first pass out, has a decent shot at the blue line, and, and that's really it. But he's going to be a third-pairing defenseman, and that's what you're hoping for. And so right now, being asked to play that system that Blaschel is is playing – I think he can be successful in it, and I thought he had a decent first three games. Yeah, you know, I, I think big picture, this is who Lindstrom is, is he's just a guy who's, who can play uh, in his own zone. He can kill penalties. He can make an efficient play. Uh, he's not. He's just not going to give you much offensively, and I think it's ultimately the, the trade-off. And I think long-term, when you're comparing two guys like that, 
My instinct is to go is to lean more toward the Chalowski type because there's the room for the upside. Uh, and I know, you know, you just talked about how you don't think he's he's like going to be top four, but I think he's at least got that potential. This is a guy who we saw throwing backhand saucer entry passes not that long ago, uh, and that's just not really who. Lindstrom is. He's not going to be a guy who's going to score you an overtime game winner like Dennis Chalowski has done. Uh, but he is at the, on the flip side, a guy who's really, uh, plays a, an efficient, smart game and, and can kill penalties, which clearly is the thing that this team is prioritizing, uh, right now. Yeah, and that's exactly right. And, and that's why I think he's up. And again, you want to get a good look at him. You want to have an understanding of what you have in the system so that you know how to prioritize uh, your roster decisions elsewhere. This is something that I think Wings fans have been asking for for a really long time. This is something that I've personally been advocating for. When you're getting into these late game scenarios and when you're or late season scenarios and when you have the opportunity to call up these guys, do it because you. The worst thing you can do is get to the end of the entry level contract, having never really seen the guy at the NHL level, particularly for one of your higher round picks. And then at that point, you're already talking about a guy who's three, at least three years out from their draft if you hadn't slid their contract. And, and now you still don't know what you have. And now you have to commit more money and more time to them. And so it's really important that you get these early looks at these players. And so I think this is exactly what the wings are doing here. Lindstrom is a guy who is not going to be harmed by playing in this environment. He's not going to be harmed by making a ton of, you know, bad mistakes. Here And so that's why I think he, he's a guy that can play up here and, and not uh, have too many issues with that. Fair enough. Uh, one of the breaking bits out of this weekend was was an injury to Robbie Fabry, who, who left the game. I believe it was in the second period, did not return. No update on him, so we don't really know much more than that. Uh, but, you know, he, he did go pretty much straight to the tunnel when he got off the ice, and that's never really a great sign, though he did, you know, do it under his own power, which is a good thing. Um What's the concern level there? I mean, obviously, we, we need to know the severity before we can get too far in deep, but any, any immediate reaction to a Robbie Fabry injury? Yeah, I think the first concern, assuming that Fabry is out multiple games, you know, Fabry's one of the guys that you and I have particularly discussed, should the Wings flip him at this year's deadline? Because, you know, he's a high-scoring player. He's really turned around his career. He's done a great, he's put together a great showcase uh, this season after having multiple years ended early to injury. But as you and I have talked about, Fabry's not really a, a complete forward in that sense. He has a lot of defensive deficiencies, very similar to Athanasiu, a guy who's much better suited to play on your third line in more limited minutes, not necessarily a guy on those higher lines. And so if a contender wants to pay you a high price to add that scoring depth on the third line for a guy like Fabry, then by all means, the wing should be entertaining that. Uh, so if this is a longer-term injury, the Wings lose the potential to do that, uh, which is going to be a, a problem. And again, depending on how long it is, you may ultimately get into the offseason uh, or near about there and have to make a decision on him without much more information. So I think the long-term poses a potential challenges, at least based on the way it looked. Again, I, I hate speculating, but it was it was a really interesting play where I guess he's coming through the slot. He gets hit by two different guys. It almost looks like he got popped up high. Uh, and so it's, it's hard to say what it is, but I, I guess I would be surprised if it, it did amount to something that was multiple games or multiple weeks. 
Yep. Yep, it'll be interesting to see. Well, I'm sure we'll get an update, uh, hopefully maybe as early as, as Monday morning at practice. Uh, but definitely something to watch as Fabry has been one of the few uh, positive stories out of this Red Wings season, and, and so naturally he has to get injured. That is the law. Exactly. We can't have nice things. Right. Uh, anything else before we go to? You had a really fun uh, kind of game for us to play here today. Yeah, so go, revisiting some of the prospects that we talked about, um, I think one of the things that the fans would enjoy would be us trying to project with you know some NHL comps for the top four prospects in the wing system and when I'm saying top four I picked two forwards two defensemen so Joe Valeno Michael Rasmussen being two forwards that will project and then Moritz Sider and Gustav Lindstrom even though he's up right now will uh project those and, and basically I think this exercise does does two things First, it allows us to get a good, uh, allows fans at least to get a good insight as to what you and I are thinking in terms of where these potential players could slot in and maybe what the max ceiling or, or maybe what their basement uh, is, if you will, from a potential standpoint. And then two, for a lot of the people who haven't been able to see them play in Grand Rapids and Max, I know you've been able to see far more Grand Rapids games than I have. It also gives a little bit more insight into the playing style of each player. And so, uh, I think you and I have tried to be thoughtful about who we're going to project for these comparisons here. So turning it over to you, Max, who do you think uh, Joe Valeno maybe best projects to, or who's a good player comp for Joe Valeno? So we actually talked about this not too long ago with, with Valeno. I sent uh, Prashant a clip of, of a rush that Joe Valeno had made. Uh, was it just last week? Yeah. Where he, he took it wide and, and right to the net. I thought it was really good uh, rush by him only to have kind of a, a flubbed finish. And you made the joke that, uh, you know, Helm-like finish. But, you know, you and I agree that that's not actually a terrible comparison, but with Valeno having a little bit more offense. So that may be one place to kind of start, though I know that that may not uh, get people so excited. The the other one that I, I think about with Valeno is like Alex Kerfoot. He's a guy who I think uh, maybe embodies that a little bit more. He he seems to have a pretty positive uh, impact on the defensive end of the ice as well as on the offensive end. He's not a star by any means, but uh, what I who I, a player who I think can be a good third-line center on a contender and even play a little up above that at times if needed. Yeah, I think those are two great comps uh, for Valeno. I think when I approached this, I tried to look at who I thought max potential would be for a particular player and then kind of what a couple more realistic ones would look like. So I think for Valeno, you know, this is a little bit of a throwback here, but for those that watch the Montreal Canadiens or over the last 15 years, one guy that always stood out to you as kind of quietly under the radar, really solid defensive forward was Thomas Plekanec. And Plekanec was a guy who could play those first, second line minutes at center. He was very solid defensively. And his peak production actually had a couple of years north of 65 points. I think that's absolute max potential for Joe Valeno. I don't see him going any higher than that. And that would be a dream situation for uh for the Red Wings, if you were able to get Valeno there. I think there were five different years or maybe six different years where Pocanich received uh, Selkie Award votes. That's kind of what you're hoping for with Valeno. I think a couple guys that maybe he better resembles would be, one, Colin Wilson, who for years played for the uh, Nashville Predators, played for the Colorado Avalanche. Wilson's, again, another guy who can play second and third line minutes, 
uh, at the center position. Relatively decent defensively. Doesn't play a ton of time. Maybe plays 12, 13 minutes a night. Uh, will chip in for you maybe 35, 40 points. Can score 20 goals. He hit 20 goals in 2014, 2015 with Nashville. I think he's another guy that is probably a better approximation of the quote-unquote Darren Helm with hands. I think Colin Wilson's a guy who can do that for you as well. He's also similarly sized to Valeno. And then last but not least, kind of bringing you back to the Stanley Cup contender standpoint of things, uh, if you go back to the Blackhawks Stanley Cup years, you know, one guy that stood out for them on the third line was Dave Boland. And I thought Boland was a, an instrumental part of their their cup team in 2009, uh, 2010, that, that particular season. He was really good defensively. Had a couple of years where back-to-back where he got Selkie Award votes. Um, I thought, again, he was uh, helpful for them in 2012-2013. I think you'd hope that Valeno has maybe a little bit more longevity and maybe a little bit more scoring prowess than uh, Boland, who only had one season above 40 points, which was the 08-09 season. Um, but those are kind of where I settle out on Joe Valeno from kind of max potential all the way down to maybe closer to the basement. Yeah, I think that's interesting. And I, I think ultimately, you know, where all of this is leading is, is pretty much a middle six center. Uh, that to me, he's a very projectable player. Like, I, I don't think there's any doubt that he's going to make the NHL. And I would have a pretty hard time seeing him being a star. But, pretty much everything in between is on the table for him. And that's something that's actually fairly desirable in, in, in a young prospect who you, who you feel pretty confident they're going to make the league. You feel pretty confident they're going to be able to, to have a career. Uh, now, then the question at that point is still just kind of where in the lineup will they ultimately slot. I, I think that's a pretty good prospect. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And I think that's why most prospect lists, and when you've seen a lot of people analyze uh, the Wings prospect system, it, it generally starts with Joe Valeno and Moritz Sider as, as one and two. And so I think Valeno is probably the second best prospect behind Sider for the Wings right now. And that's because he can potentially, he, he reasonably projects into that middle six, uh, position. Yep. Absolutely. All right. So then Max, next one for you, my, our favorite one to disagree on is Michael Rasmussen. Yeah, so you listed a couple of ones on here that I thought were pretty interesting. So I, you know, I don't know that I have as good of a grasp on this one just because there's so few uh, players of that size who have made it. So, you know, I'm not going to spoil yours, but I, but I got to say a couple of yours intrigued me quite a bit, especially the first name that you list. So actually, let's, can we just start with you? Yeah, so obviously... When you're talking about Rasmussen, guys who are six foot six and playing center are very rare. So when I was thinking about this question, I tried to narrow my search to guys who are at least similarly sized. And so the the first name that really came to mind in terms of what would be the dream situation for the Detroit Red Wings, uh, it's a guy who Wings fans will remember quite well, having played against him extensively in Dallas and in um, New Jersey, as well as um, towards the end of his career in Nashville, it's Jason Arnott. So Arnott, obviously a, a very great scorer. And so if you got anything near Jason Arnott's production out of Michael Rasmussen, you would be doing cartwheels, you know, all the way around outside the arena because Arnott was a guy who routinely was going to put up north of 50 points for you. He was going to put up, you know, 25 goals. And he was a great contributor on the power play as well. A lot of his production um, really came on the power play. He had multiple seasons, I think five five or six seasons in his career with 10 or more power play goals. So he was a guy that was able to use his size at six foot six 
to really be a, a menace around the net. He was six, I think he was six five, six six, two twenty. Great hands, great skater. That's kind of the dream situation for Michael Rasmussen. Is you hope he fills out the frame, learns how to use it, and you get a guy who scores four hundred goals in his career. That's that's the dream. Kind of bringing it down a notch though is is Martin Hansel, who's I think you know floated in the NHL a little bit more. Maybe brings your much less scoring potential. He's a guy who's going to slot maybe 35, 40 points. But again, another six foot six forward uh, who's able to use their frame, effective on the power play. Uh, again, a decent defensive defensive player. And even this, I still think it's maybe a little too high of a projection for Rasmussen. Yeah, I, I thought the Hansel one was pretty interesting. I mean, I think that the one that you've heard the Red Wings use as the player that they want Rasmussen's game to emulate is Jordan Stahl. And that's pretty ambitious, right? Stahl's a guy who had Selkie votes in damn near every season of his NHL career, except for a couple there at, you know, 2013-14 and 14-15. That's a little steep, but I think the production for me is at least in the right range. It's generally a lot of 20-goal seasons in in that somewhere between 30 and 50-point range, a a lot of them in the 40s. To me, I think that's attainable. I've seen Rasmussen make some really nice passes around the net. He's obviously a absolute menace tipping pucks and, and getting rebounds. Uh, even just today, he had a really nice pass to Svechnikov from below the goal line to set up a goal. I think he's going to be an offensive uh, threat, but they they see him as a defensive player. So uh, in that sense, I think you're looking at a similar projection. I've got him a little above Valeno when I've done my rankings, uh, and, and that's basically – or who did I put – higher lesson. I don't really remember, but either way, I think I might have had Valeno a notch above, but they're really close. And so uh, I, I think Rasmussen maybe has a little bit more upside just because uh, while Valeno can play both sides of the ice, I, I think Rasmussen's really elite, elite trait uh, at the net and being able to create offense at the net uh, does give him a little bit more upside. I just think Valeno's a little bit safer uh, of a projection at this point. So I, I the guy who I think stylistically he reminds me of is like Brian Boyle, but like with twice the production. So that's not really helpful because I don't know how easy that is to kind of picture. But in terms of the length, it's another guy who's gotten some Selkie votes through his career. Uh, I think Rasmussen can have that kind of impact with, with, with how good he is uh, with his stick. Uh, and then ultimately when you talk about what he can do at the net, I think he's a, I think he's a really good player. See, that's really interesting because if you were, if you were to ask me what my conservative assessment of, of Michael Rasmussen would be, would be, it would be Brian Boyle, but exactly as is. Uh, right. Because, I mean, Boyle's got one 20-goal season, you know, one 30-point season, mostly sticks in the 20 to 25-point range with a large chunk of that coming on the power play. Uh, an effective third-line, fourth-line player um, in his own right. I mean, as you mentioned, a couple of years with Selkie votes, but... That's kind of my conservative projection for a player like Michael Rasmussen. So it's it's going to take something to really move the needle from from that to a guy like Martin Hansel or even uh, Jason Arnott if he were to get anywhere near that production level. Well, that's why I say like sty- it's stylistic, right? Like yeah, I think yeah. in terms of in terms of production, I think you can produce more like you know more like a Hansel, but but I think it's with a style of of, of a Boyle type, if that makes sense. Yeah, completely agree. Yeah. All right. Uh, next one. Next one, the inspiration for this whole thing was Max sending me a text today uh, about Moritz Cider and a player comp that, that Max has for Moritz Cider. 
again, it's it's like a it's like a bad one because it's not perfect. But uh, <laughs> I I saw Brandon Carlo uh, playing in his defensive zone today and thought, wow, that actually looks quite a bit like Mort Sider in the D zone. But again, I think Sider's got more offense than Carlo. So uh, I'm really bad at player comparisons. I don't know if you guys have noticed that over the course of, of listening to this show, but I I just. I don't know. I thought stylistically Carlo in his own end reminded me quite a bit of Cider. I looked up some some numbers, and in his own end, he's quite impactful in a positive way, uh, which is what I think Cider's going to be. I think he's going to be an absolute rock defensively, and I think he's in that, like, you know, 30 to 40-point range at his peak, but most often in the 30s uh, as an NHLer. You know, I, I think you could probably, on the, on the upswing, you can probably dream on Pareko a little bit. But uh, to me, I don't think Carlo's a bad floor at all. That's a no-doubt top-four guy to me. Yeah, I don't think Carlo's a bad floor to be, and I think that's a reasonable spot to set the floor. I think a couple of guys that if you're if you're maybe shooting a little bit higher, I think Pareko's obviously the modern-day comp that you want Sider to be. Absolute rocket of a slap shot. Not thought for, not really considered for his offensive prowess, but he can contribute because he's got such a lethal shot. He is so effective in, in leading the outbreak, uh, basically leading the rush. So I, I think he's a great ceiling if you're hoping that that's where Moritz Satter can get to. A couple of other names that really came to mind. Uh, one, and, and people are going to be really mad when I say this name, but hear me out, is Dion Phaneuf. But Dion Phaneuf when he was in Calgary, where he was a power play quarterback, 60-point defenseman, lays the body on, plays with kind of that nasty edge, and he was really effective in Calgary. The guy was an all-star defenseman. He actually got MVP votes one year, uh, runner-up for the Norris, I believe, in, in 07, 08. He was really, really effective. And then I think moving from the situation in Calgary, uh, where they had a pretty strong team, um, to the situation in Toronto, basically derailed his career and I don't know that he ever recovered from that moving to Ottawa and LA and so I think his career really got off track because for I think seven consecutive years he had Norris uh, sorry not seven consecutive five consecutive years he had Norris trophy votes uh, to open his season so Phaneuf is kind of a guy that I, I think about with Cider maybe a little bit less offensive production from Cider relative to Phaneuf but stylistically that game with the nasty edge um, while also being able to contribute offensively. Yeah, no, I mean, I think that's, I think that's who he is, is he's a guy who in his own end is a rock. He's going to, he's going to hit you. He's going to hit you hard uh, and he's going to enjoy it. And I think that's, probably what the Red Wings like about him most at this point is is how much of that quality has come out already in Grand Rapids. And, oh, by the way, he's a guy who continues to show little flashes that he can get you uh, with, with some production, too. I mean, he's near a half point per game right now uh, in the American Hockey League, which is quite good for a player at just 18 years old. I mean, I think he's exceeded expectations for sure. Uh, and that's where you can dream on kind of the higher end potential there. But I think at minimum, he, this is a guy who's going to be a rock defensively. Yeah, I completely agree, and that's where I think he's probably better defensively than Phaneuf ever was, but he probably won't score at what Phaneuf did, and and that's where I think that's maybe a, a decent comp to look at. I think it's very fair. Uh, I think it's very fair. Uh, All right. Anyone else you want to talk about before we go on to the next ones? i got to hear your Gustav Lindstrom comp because I keep throwing out Jonathan Erickson, and so some someone's got to back me up or you got to go a completely different direction here. I don't know, man. Like, 
the one that uh, I think Craig quoted in a in an article at one point was on Anton Strahlman. I think that's kind of interesting. But again, Strahlman had a really long career. I'm not sure that I can uh, I can expect that out of Lindstrom. Yeah, I mean Strahlman is also a heck of a defenseman. Uh, exactly, top, top pairing guy. He was outstanding for really every team that he played for. Uh, the Rangers, the Lightning, every step of the way. You know, a couple other guys, just so people don't get mad about the Jonathan Erickson comp. I think maybe a ceiling for me is Alec Martinez, who's playing over in Los Angeles. I think Martinez was a guy who was able to play 20 minutes a night uh, when needed, mostly second pairing over in L.A. I think he was able to help him a lot. He scored, obviously, the very famous Stanley Cup winning goal for the Kings uh, against Henrik Lundqvist that one year. So he he's a guy where I think maybe that's your ceiling. Never a great offensive player. Uh, you know, had one season where he really got decent point totals, but outside of that, roughly around 20 points. I think he's a guy. And then really the other guy that, again, people are going to get mad about, but this is maybe more of a realistic basement projection, is Andreas Lilia, who, again, for years played for the Red Wings uh, on when they were Stanley Cup contender in the, in the late 2000s, uh, was effective on the third line, was able to chip in a little bit offensively, but ultimately kind of got played his way out of Detroit with a number of defensive miscues and and such. So you would hope it's a different ending, but I think he was a guy who maybe had the type of career I envisioned Gustav Lindstrom having, except maybe Lindstrom being a little bit more solid defensively. So what is your kind of takeaway from from this range of comparisons? What should people take out out of these? I think the important thing to take out of this is you and I have both projected the forwards to be roughly middle six forwards with me being a little bit lower on Rasmus and you being maybe a little bit higher on him. And potentially with Moritz Sider, we've taken a guy and we've said this is probably a top pairing defenseman, but maybe a floor of a top four defenseman. And we've taken Gustav Lindstrom and we've said this guy's squarely third pairing. I gave him maybe a little bit of a ceiling into the second pairing with the Alec Martinez comp as well as potentially the fact that he can have a shorter career in the sense that Andreas Lilia did, even though Lilia did end up with 580 NHL games. Uh, so I think importantly you're seeing where we're placing these players, stylistically what you can expect from them, uh, and I think that gives you an assessment of what the Wings might look to do in this year's draft as well as in the offseason when you're thinking about how do you fill in the rest of the roster. Yep, I think that's right. And I think people will hear some of them and they'll hear me say, you know, Valeno Helm plus like plus or, you know, plus 10, 15 points or whatever and, and be discouraged by that. But, uh, that's also a guy the Red Wings have, have leaned heavily on when he was in his prime. I mean, that was a really good skating penalty killing player who, if we're telling you you're going to add 10, 15 points to that, we're talking about like a 45, 50 point player. Kerfoot's a 45 ish point player, right? So that's, that's a legit, uh, second line production from a guy who also plays defense. So I, I think that, the, you know, I think those are probably encouraging comps, but I don't know that they're going to excite people as much as maybe they uh, they would hope when they hear we're going to do player comps. Yeah, I completely agree. I, I think you may not you may come away a little discouraged from this, but ultimately it's realistic. I think these are where these guys are going to play out, and that's why there's still a lot of holes to fill on this team. Yep, I think it's as illustrative of that as anything else. Should we go to the listener questions? Yep, let's do it. Not as plentiful of a of a batch today. I think I might have called it out too uh, too close to showtime. But 
We can start with this one, which I think is kind of just a fun activity. Chris Ripley asks, if you could take one player off every team the Red Wings have beat so far this season, does that make the Red Wings a cup contender? I think the answer to that is a clear yes, but let's just go through and do it for fun. All right. Well, so then you got to start with today, right? So who are you taking off the Boston Bruins? Uh, it's Pasternak? I think Pasternak's probably the right answer here. I could also go with Brad Marchand. I think he's also an outstanding selection, but I'd probably take Pasternak as well. The Red Wings beat him twice, but he said every team the Red Wings have beaten, so I don't think that means draft two different Bruins. Yeah, and I also don't really want three Montreal Canadiens, so we'll just we'll just stick with the one team. <laughs> All right. Uh, part of the reason I said Pasternak is because uh, while Bergeron would have been a boon at center, uh, then it would leave us a lot less options to draft from here, uh, the Buffalo Sabres. Yeah, I mean, the Buffalo Sabres, I think really, you know, you could make the decision to take Jack Eichel up front, which seems like the obvious. Eichel's been absolutely outstanding this year. I think you could also consider Rasmus Dahlin, but for me, it's got to be Eichel. All right. Uh, I'll agree with that. Ottawa. Ottawa. Honestly, Anthony Duclair has just been outstanding this year, so he's he's the guy I'm going to take from them, but I, I sense you might swing for a, a younger player. Yeah, I mean, to me, it comes down to Brady Kachuk or Thomas Shabbat, and I'm going to say Shabbat. Yeah, I think Shabbat's great. I think you could make a strong case for for Brady Kachuk as well. Um, I, I just really like Duclair on the wing, and I think he's finally in a good situation. So, All right, who do you want from Montreal? Oh, boy. i got to take someone from Montreal. I mean, the answer for me, I think, long-term, honestly, right now, is, is Nick Suzuki. I think he's just an outstanding forward. He's having an excellent year. Um, already with 11 goals, 35 points, having a great season. Um, although I think you could very easily make a very strong case for former Red Wing Thomas Tatar, who's playing at almost a point-per-game pace right now. Yeah, I, I think either of those make a whole lot of sense. So would Philip Deneau, but I think center's filling up pretty quick here uh, based on so far, and there's maybe maybe one more center worth taking up the up the road. So... I'm fine. You always take uh, you could always take Max Domi, right? Yeah, you could. You could uh, how about San Jose? <laughs> yeah, San Jose, San Jose. Uh, you know, to me, I, I got to take Thomas Hurdle. I know he's out the rest of the way, but Hurdle's I can at least slot him on the wing. Absolutely dynamite scorer, uh, dynamite playmaker. He's a guy that I absolutely want on my team. See, and this is why I hesitated at center, is I think you're taking Couture here. He's a winner. Uh, he's a center. I think he's your guy in the playoffs. I think that's fair. I mean, there's nothing wrong with Logan Couture. He's, he's obviously an outstanding player overall. Um, I was kind of jumping the gun on center a little bit because, you know, if we move from San Jose to maybe another team like Winnipeg, I can take Mark Shifley. That's true, and there's <laughs> we haven't gotten to Edmonton yet. Uh you're taking Shifley from Winnipeg? Yeah, I'm going to take Shifley from Winnipeg. I'll take Line A because going to need center space up the road. Uh, Anaheim. Ooh, Anaheim. Do I really want anybody from Anaheim? you got to take a defenseman here. No, you know who I take? I take John Gibson. you got to take the goaltender. Oh, John that's Gibson's a good outstanding. One. Vegas. Uh, Mark Stone? Yeah, uh, that next question, Mark Stone. <laughs> Edmonton. Um, this one is not hard, Connor McDavid. Uh, Dallas, Miro Haskinen. 
Yeah, I mean, Heiskanen's probably where it's at, although, you know, John Klingberg's having a down season. He's really been outstanding um, all the years prior. I think Heiskanen's probably the right answer, but Klingberg I could very easily make a case for. All right, and then uh, Nashville, I'm going to go Roman Yossi. Yeah, Yossi, uh, Yossi would really help the Red Wings defense right now. Uh, you know, you could also make a really strong case for Philip Forsberg. Um, me believe, or yeah. even Victor Arvidsson as well. Um, I probably would take Forsberg though. All right. Well, either way, I think the answer to the question should be clear by now, which is that that is absolutely the best team in the NHL. If you yeah, take that's a that's a Stanley Cup contender. So I think we're there. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. But I think that was a fun exercise either way. <laughs> Not that For it sure. led us to any big revealing conclusions, but uh, I don't know. It's 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 the fun of an expansion team, just stealing people's players, right? It's exactly right, and it's what Seattle gets to do in just a little bit here. Uh, Aris asks, Evgeny Svechnikov discuss. Have any Evgeny Svechnikov? So he had a huge weekend this weekend, five points in two games against the Stars. Yeah, three points uh, in the game uh, on, on Sunday night. So really big, really big weekend for Svechnikov, and I think he's getting to see a little bit more time, you know, on, on the top units with Philip Zanina not being down there. So I think that's been huge for him. I, I just don't know what to make of him at this point. Um, you know, you're five years out from his draft. Very few impact players make the NHL five years out from their draft. Uh, so I, I have a hard time seeing him truly translating to the NHL. Now, yes, he did have the, the year where he missed a lot of it because of the ACL injury, and, and maybe that uh, shouldn't count against him in terms of that five-year time frame. But I just I don't see it. I thought this would be the year where you'd have a guaranteed spot uh, in the in the in Detroit, and unfortunately, it didn't work out that way. He only got a, a four games in before he was sent back down. And next year, even though the Wings have a lot of forward turnover, you do have to wonder if he's going to get leapfrogged by um, you know Joe Valeno, Michael Rasmussen, with one of those guys potentially playing on the wing and taking a spot from him in the top nine. Uh, or you do have to wonder if the Wings decide that he's still not ready and they, they re-sign, um, you know, an Adam Ernie, a Brendan Perlini like we talked about, or even pick another guy out of free agency. So, you know, I think the time is is coming close to Sveshnikov maybe not being able to stick in the organization if he wants a shot just because, you know, at the rate he's going, eventually he's going to get passed by Berggren, he's going to get passed by Master Simone. And potentially, if the Wings take a winger in this year's draft, um, you know, he may slot into the NHL automatically as well. So I just don't see uh, an NHL future for Svechnikov with the Red Wings right now. Yeah, I think, you know, this stretch is big for him because it could help him get a call-up, uh, which ultimately could help him get kind of a either a, a good shot, you know, out of training camp next year in a down lineup role or arguably maybe more likely at this point, uh, a look at another organization. I think a lot of people would like to see him get a shot with his brother in Carolina. Um, rarely does the sentimentality work out that way, but you never know. And, and you know, the, there are two organizations that have made a trade this year um, that I think, you know, the Hurricanes probably uh, came out on top of, of that one, getting Oliver Kasky for, for Kyle Woods. So, uh, maybe they wouldn't be shy to circle back and take another flyer on a Red Wings prospect who's not necessarily getting uh, 
quite the the big role. Although he is now, like you mentioned, uh, who hasn't been getting quite the, the premier opportunities. Uh, but at the very minimum, I think I think if if Sveshnikov keeps this up, he should at least get a post trade deadline look, right? Yeah, I mean, you would think that he gets a, a deadline look, particularly if Fabry's out for a handful of games. You got to think that that's a clear top nine spot for the Wings to give Svechnikov a shot at, and and I think it would make a whole lot of sense. And then again, if Athanasiu or somebody else gets moved at the deadline, that should again open another opportunity for Svechnikov. But unfortunately, as these opportunities have popped up, he's been passed over by for other guys, and generally rightfully so. Um, so we'll see. I, I do expect you to get another look at him this year. I just don't see a, a path to the NHL for him with Detroit. Jason asks, Chalowski trade value? Yeah, this is another tricky one because he's certainly a guy that I think on prior episodes, I think I've said this once, where he's a guy I wouldn't mind pairing with an Athanasie with Fabry to elevate the return, particularly if it got you into the first round plus uh first round draft pick plus territory uh i think that would be a no-brainer for me um given again where you and i have you know discussed chalowski likely settling out and what he's likely to be you do want to avoid a situation like detroit's been in for the last five years where you have six or seven guys all projected to be top you know uh i should say bottom pairing defensemen without a lot of ceiling room. Now, obviously, Chalowski is still very young in his career, has a lot uh, to go on his development path. I think there's still a path forward for him in Detroit where he can become a top four defenseman. Uh, I'm just very conservative with my estimates and would rather imagine the worst and, and get you know be pleasantly surprised with uh, something before. And so for me, I don't have much of an issue elevating Chalowski's uh, you know, into the trade discussion. I think by himself, though, he doesn't net you a lot. I think he is better off in a Athanasiu plus or a Fabry plus or a somebody else plus him to really raise the value uh, of the return. I, I think you're dead on with that. And I think it's because team's big fear in giving up a first round pick is that they're giving up upside. And at minimum, if you're getting back a defenseman who was not that long ago drafted in the first round, uh, you are getting back upside and you are getting back a chance to say, hey, uh, you know, if I'm a GM, I really like what I could potentially uh, do here if, if I get a 30 goal scorer now and the potential for a defenseman who can play on a second pair someday. In the end, uh, there's no guarantee that a first round draft pick, especially one that's coming from a playoff team, is going to yield either of those two things. Uh, so I, I do think that's an interesting route to go. Now, the question is, if you're the Red Wings, are you giving that package up readily to a team like, you know, that, that you think is going to be picking in the last eight or nine spots of the first round? Yeah, and that's the thing, because is Athanasiu plus Chalowski worth a late first round pick? And, you know, again, the and is what's going to be really important here. Are you getting a second round in that situation? Are you getting another first that's in a different draft year? Uh, are you getting a highly touted prospect from an organization? You're not getting too fresh. That's, that's kind of the question here. I think the and is really going to dictate do you make that deal or not because a late first-round pick by itself, even though there's a lot of good talent and there is a relatively deep draft available to pick from even into the late 20s and, and early 30s, uh, I do think you need a couple of extra pieces there to make that worthwhile for the Wings to, to part with Chalowski 
plus one of those other guys we've talked about. Very interesting. All right, last one is from Jeff Wiggins. He says he's still excited about this Red Wings team, even though they're historically bad. Is that optimism misplaced, or do they really have the pieces to start making gains next year? This is one of my favorite questions because being at the Columbus Hockey Analytics Conference this weekend, there were so many opportunities for Detroit to get dunked on. And and they did get dunked on, you know, in their own right, but it was only once. And a lot of people afterwards, um, a handful of us congregated together and we're just talking about the Red Wings and, and how bad it's been. And a lot of people actually came up and said, you know, sorry, you guys have had the season that you've had. It's, I know it's been rough to watch. And honestly, my answer was, I'm not really that sorry. I've kind of steered into it. You know that this is where the team is and this is what's been set up from the last few years. But there's a reason for optimism and it's that there are pieces here that um, are going to be on a cup contending team in the near future. I think Dylan Larkin is a bona fide first line center. I think you've got a talented player in Tyler Bertuzzi that can slot up and down the lineup. I think Philip Ronick, while he is starting to burn out this year, I think he still has that top four ability. And then you look at guys like Philip Zadina, Anthony Manta. Those are other guys you can slot into a top six. And then Moritz Sider coming up is obviously huge. And then we talked a lot about Michael Rasmussen and Joe Valeno potentially being middle six guys. You have a lot of pieces to a top nine. You've got a couple pieces to a solid top four. And I think the Wings are on the right track with their act, with the way that they have managed their cap, with the kind of organizational philosophy right now, such that I am willing to uh, have hope or have faith in this plan moving forward because a lot of the parts right now make sense. And so with that, I am willing to take the losing to be in the position to have those best lottery odds. Yeah, and I think, you know, the root of the question is, will they make gains next year? Probably. I mean, it's it's hard to imagine repeating a season this bad, especially when some of the underlying stuff says, you know, they've also gotten a little bit unlucky. Uh, but I think the big takeaway from all the stuff that Prashant has just, has just um, mentioned is we've talked before on this show about how one of the priorities and one of the difficult balances to strike during a rebuild, especially during the bottom-out part of a rebuild, is gathering the right pieces so that when you do get those high-end pieces in, into place, you can just get in the car and go, and you can start start the, the march forward immediately. I think um, in Rasmussen, I think in Valeno, I think uh, in Moritz Sider, they now have a lot of the pieces that if they do get an Alexi Lafreniere, and I, I still think they'd probably be another you know top five pick away at that point, but they're not that far suddenly from adding the right couple of veterans uh, and just being able to start going, right? Like they've got a lot of the rest of their lineup. It's really the high end, so somewhere in the system that is. Uh, it's really just the high end that I think they're still missing. I mean, uh, Allison Lucan and, and Haley, um, uh, or sorry, not Haley, <laughs> Shayna, uh, did a great story in the uh, Athletic about the trade deadline and what pieces teams had. And one of the conclusions that they drew, you know, the Red Wings graded out pretty rough in that whole thing, uh, but they do have a couple of first-line players in, in Larkin and Mantha, and I think what we've seen uh, in history is, is teams have kind of players like that often scattered throughout their top six, not just on their top line. But I think that's one of the key things that this year has cemented is the um, the fact that the Red Wings 
in Mantha, getting an emerging player in that sphere who can be kind of ready to go once the other high-end talent arrives. Larkin, I think we already knew, was that. Bertuzzi bolstering himself as a top-six player. So uh, you need Hironic to have a little bit of a bounce back from what he's done over the last few weeks. You need more Cider to be what you think he is, and you got to solidify something on that left side. Uh, but other than that, I think once you can get the, those those two, three more high-end pieces in the system, um, I do think there's there's the ability to, to start turning it on and going. Yeah, I completely agree. I do not think you are that far away from being able to turn. And by that far away, I'm talking about in years as in terms of as opposed to pieces. So if you were to hit this year and get Alexi Lafreniere, and then hit next year and get a guy like Ratty or or somebody else, uh, you're all of a sudden you're all, all bets are off and you're running and you're potentially in the playoffs as early as two years from now. Now that's not a likely scenario, but if you were to get those two pieces or, or potentially three pieces, you have the ability to then just put the pedal to the metal, go out, get those free agents to solidify the rest of that roster, and you're back in, in contention. And, and so I think there's reason for optimism. I don't think next year is going to be a substantial stride forward, even if you add a guy like Lafreniere. I think you're going to still be a bottom five team, and you're likely going to pick in the top seven next year, which is what the Wings need in order to move one step closer. Yep, absolutely. That'll do for the questions. Uh, this week, the Red Wings will go on the road. They're going to go to the East Coast. They're going to go back to Buffalo. They're going to go to New Jersey, to Boston, and then swing through Pittsburgh for another Sunday NBC game that I'm sure no one on Twitter will complain about them being on NBC as they did today. Uh, anybody, anything over the next week, I guess, that you're really looking forward to watching? I think the thing I'm going to pay most attention to is what comes of the Fabry injury and if Mantha and Helm and Nielsen are all ready to roll uh, against Buffalo, then that's great, and, and you don't have to make a roster move um, if you're able to activate Anthony Mantha off of IR. But if they are not ready, then does a guy like Svechnikov get a look? Do you put Michael Rasmussen in for a look, uh, or are they going to manage this very differently? I think that's what I'm most excited to see is how, how do the Wings manage the current injury situation? For me, it's Andreas Athanasiu, and he's gotten the puck in the net now a couple times uh, Sunday night. As you get into really like the two weeks until deadline March here, uh, I think he's the guy to watch because he remains kind of their most their most uh, appealing, realistic trade chip that could go. And I think if he gets on a little bit of a heater while there's a lot of eyes on him, uh, maybe that maybe that makes something happen. Yeah, you know anything can happen with Athanasiu. He's always been a streaky player, and if if he gets it going, watch out. Yep, absolutely. All right, we will be back at you in the middle of this week to keep talking about this stuff. Thanks for thanks for listening.